Welcome to Season 3 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Addison, and today we have Christopher Boone, Vice President and Global Head of Health Economics and Outcomes Research at AbbVie. Christopher, thank you for joining us on the podcast. No, thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Chris, I, I've, I've heard you speak a few times. Very, very talented and entertaining speaker, if I would say it, which is which is not common at, at some medical conferences. But if you don't mind, kind of tell us about your background in the journey to your current position at AbbVie. Oh, yeah, sure, man. Um, I think the first thing we should note that is I am a, a native Dallas Texan, as I like to disclose to people. Um, you know, can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, native uh, Dallasite, if you will, grew up in the city of Dallas uh, and actually was one of the few folks who lived there, but actually moved back to the city where you're from. You know, you got a lot of people from from in Dallas that are not necessarily from there. But um, it, was, it was there that I then went to the University of Tulsa and at, at the University of Tulsa. And I uh, kind of came to this epiphany after having done a number of internships in the oil and gas and energy industries that it wasn't for me. <laughs> you know, I know that it was the the predominant industry in that in that particular region of the country, but I just found no fulfillment in it at all. And I, I remember having a conversation with uh, one of my advisors in college who asked me to pursue uh, this idea of hospital administration and, and healthcare. And, uh, and when I looked into it, I didn't know much about it, honestly. I didn't know that that was a viable career path, to be totally honest. I thought when, if you were in healthcare, you were some sort of clinician or provider, and that was generally the extent of what you did. But after uh, around my sophomore year, as I'd started to do more and more research into it, I found, I was like, this is perfect. I knew I wanted to be a CEO. I knew I wanted to help people. So I committed myself to, um, to ultimately pursuing this path of being a CEO of what I felt was a public hospital that would essentially service the needs of folks in um, uh, in underserved areas. So in my case, you know, and in Dallas, that would have been a, a hospital like Parkland Hospital, right? Um, so after I graduated, um, you know, I actually came back to Dallas. I started, um, you know, uh, pursuing, you know, healthcare-related jobs. I actually ended up working, getting an opportunity to work with the uh, University of Texas at Southwest, the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, which was my first technical uh, health, technically my first healthcare job. Um, I was there, you know, doing some much more like IT technical support. They had a number of systems. And, and it's, it's interesting because at that time, literally, this was in 2002, 2003 timeframe, there weren't, there wasn't the, yeah, uh, there there wasn't the prevalence of electronic health record systems that it is now. So you kind of fast forward and think it's crazy, but at that time they were still very much like, yeah, I don't know if you remember Microsoft Access. <laughs> you know, I would say the equivalent of Microsoft Access, like databases, uh, being run in many of these hospitals. So when, when we say we were doing support on many of these um, information systems, they were very rudimentary. You know, and uh, and so anyway, so it was there. Then I actually end up in a, being a, being recruited over to Texas Health Resources uh, Resources, which is you know a lot obviously a large integrated delivery system there. 
And they were getting ready to launch this initiative call uh, on this electronic health record system with this small company at the time called Epic. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you fast forward now, you're like, that company used to be a tiny company then. Um, so I had, to, I had a great opportunity to be exposed to a number of different transformational initiatives around informatics in the hospital. And I think really that's where it all really started for me. Um, you know, I, uh, if you fast forward up to my career, through my career, then you get to the point where I started to work at the American Heart Association. That was my pivot into the area of clinical research, use, basically the secondary use of data that we were capturing in many of these electronic systems. And so that's where we were starting to get into the world of real-world data and real-world evidence before we were even calling it that. It was just really the secondary use of data that we were capturing. And, and um and so, you know, you fast forward and I had the great fortune of working at a great firm in D.C. by the name of Avalier. Then I went and had an opportunity to lead a public-private partnership called the Health Data Consortium, which was affiliated with, uh, with the Obama administration's efforts of, you know, healthcare reform and health uh, innovation. Um, then was recruited away uh, to work at Pfizer um, to essentially expand their uh, initiatives around real-world data and analytics, and um, and then had the, another great opportunity to, to really establish an organization called Global Medical Epidemiology and Big Data uh, Analysis at Pfizer as part of that, too. So, you know, I've had just, uh, I just think I, I, I couldn't have scripted my career any better than it's just organically filled out. And I, and I always think it's great because people ask me all the time, how did you get to where you were and did you, did you map that out? And I was like, honestly... My career aspiration at when I started was to be a CEO of a public hospital, right? Um, I don't think I could have scripted this to any better than what um, than what it's worked out. And, and I'm and I'm you know in, in many ways I'm grateful for it because I can see the impact that I make, and um, you go from there. Yeah, you know we hear the term real world evidence. You know more and more industry uses it. Um, physicians use it. Before then, it was just you hear the term big data kind of as a, a blanket term. Uh, can you clarify for us, like, just what is real world evidence and, and how can it help us expand the practice of precision medicine? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that you, you'll oftentimes you'll hear the terms real world data and real world evidence used interchangeably. Um, they're not the same. Um, the real world data, I would I would more equate to being like the raw data that you're capturing from um, electronic health records, patient registries, insurance claims data, uh, pharmacy records, even social media data. I mean, and, and now which is a big thing as we talk about social determinants, it's environmental data. Right. Um, so it's really all the data that you capture outside of a randomized clinical trial that would um, tell you about the experience uh, of the patient. Right. And so um, now the, now the, it's important because, you know, for the longest time, we just uh, relied solely on uh, randomized clinical trial evidence to really tell us around around the, sef- the safety and efficacy of a, of a drug or a therapy in a real world context. And keep in mind, real world evidence itself is not just limited to drug therapies. Right. You know, you have medical devices, you have other intervention interventions that are are being conducted. What real-world data is simply saying is that I want to understand how this works in a real-world context that's not a controlled environment, right? When you think of uh, randomized clinical trials, you think of a homogenous population, 
who usually had to meet certain inclusion and exclusion uh, criteria to even qualify to be part of the clinical trial. So it's intentionally controlled, and that's really to see if there is a um, if there's a substantive effect uh, of whatever intervention on the patient and their health condition, right? Um, and so, um, and so when you think about real world data, what you're really saying is that the world is really not controlled. The human population is not that homogenous. You know, you have people that deal with uh, comorbid uh, uh, conditions. You have folks that live in certain environments, others who don't. Certain people that have access to care, others who don't. Um, you have folks that have, that fit a certain genetic profile. You have a number of factors that contribute to the overall health condition of an individual. And, and that real-world data is telling us, tell us about those people. And tell us about how effective is this intervention or how effective is this therapy in that real world context. And that's the that's the shift that the the world is taking as we start to get more into this whole value based uh, healthcare system that um, everyone seems to be particularly uh, enamored with. And now what precision medicine says is that it's an acknowledgement that, um, you know, that the world is different and you and I are of different genetic uh, makeups and we all we live in different environments, blah, blah, blah. It's saying that how do I personalize that medicine and tailor it to you and to ensure that you have a more positive response to the therapies that we're you're being treated with, right? And uh, And so if you think about it, um, you know, I think that uh, a world like oncology, for example, where the patients are all very different, you know, you, you, you can utilize that real world data to improve the clinical outcomes for many of those patients. And that's really where the integration of those two really starts to take shape. If you think about areas where, you know, I, I think folks are looking at real world evidence as being somewhat um you know, kind of uh, the solution for all situations. And, I, and and as an advocate for it, I would never say that, right? But I think in, in certain situations, as you start to get into many of the, the rare diseases that are out there, and there's, uh, you know, a gazillion of them out there, right? Uh, and then you start to get into many of the oncological conditions, you recognize quickly that RWE can tell you a lot about the patient and the patient experience and how we can adjust the treatment protocols to improve their their clinical outcomes. And that's really what we're trying to do. So what areas of healthcare do you anticipate this making the most immediate impact on? Here on the podcast, we tend to focus a lot of the conversation on uh, precision medicine's role in cancer care, but we know that precision medicine and obviously the, the real world evidence is expanding in many different you know, disease states. Yeah. No, I, I think that cancer is certainly one of them. And you know, man, even if you just focused on the issue of cancer uh, alone, it would be huge, right? I mean, um, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that I actually just lost a, a very dear family member, my aunt, to cancer on Monday night. And, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's tough when you kind of experience these things directly. And it's a reminder of why we do what we do. And um, and so, uh, um, but but I but I definitely think in, uh, in in cancer and all the different tumor types that are out there and all the different uh, cancers that are out there, you can make a, a an incredible impact on on um, on patient lives. But I think that you know people should fully understand that the idea and the notion of of real evidence is not as novel as we think. I don't think we've used the term, and I mean it's a bit buzzwordy nowadays, um, but we, we've been focused on the, the secondary use of much of these clinical data for a long time. You know, I mean, I think about in cardiovascular care, the idea of building patient registries to improve many of the clinical practice guidelines and protocols has been around 
for at least uh, a, a few decades now at this point. So in that case, it wouldn't necessarily be new. I think that, you know, you saw this uh, uh, increasing, increasingly uh, u- uh, use of rural evidence over the last five years or so, and people are more and more using it. So it sounds, it's it's like the new form of big data, I think, in some yeah. regards. Um, and, uh, but, I, but I do think that it has general applicability to, to other therapeutic areas as well. Um, you know, I don't think it's necessarily limited because remember, it's really what you're really trying to solve for is better understanding uh, the real world performance and real uh, of, a, of, a, of an intervention or a therapy and the real world experience of a patient. That's consistent across the entire healthcare system, right? I mean, it's not just limited to oncology. It's not just limited to the topic of precision medicine. And then when you think about this idea of precision medicine, what makes um, you know, it actually viable at this point are a number of factors converging, right? We've had um, over the last decade, you've seen exponential growth of cloud computing, for example, right? So we don't have the storage issues we used to have, right? You've seen the uh, exponential growth of processing, computing processing power and analytical capabilities now, right? And even the um, increasing adoption of many of these advanced analytical capabilities that we see through the forms of AI and NLP and all these other things that essentially, I think, enable um, um, the, the better use of precision medicine. I remember when precision medicine, we were just calling it personalized medicine. Right. And uh, and, uh, you know, and it was uh, and it was taking a different tone. And then we obviously pivoted and now we're calling it precision medicine, which is fine. But 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 the reality is, is that it's not what you call it that makes it more effective. It's all of the enablers that contribute to it. And a lot of it is technological. And so uh, so from my vantage point, I think of this this explosion of of data and data sources that we have now that we've never had before. You know, we, you know, from everything from wearable technologies to ingestibles that are uh, seemingly becoming more interesting um, to the idea of even just the patient-generated health data that we get in a passive way, right, in a passive manner, I think are all contributing to um, an ability to be much more precise in how we think about precision medicine. I think it's funny because, I mean, from my, from my vantage point, you can you can you can attach precision to literally everything. You can say precision medicine. You can say precision marketing. <laughs> you can say precision yeah. supply chain. I mean, you can you can apply. It's just really all the. It's about the ability to make much more evidence based decisions um, in whatever context you want to apply it to. Yeah, the focus for you and your team at Avvi is looking at health economics and outcomes research. What are some examples or some ways to leverage real world evidence to improve patient outcomes or or reduce the cost of cancer care? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's great. I mean, so so you I, I, when you think about our group, um, you can think about a number of key uh, activities that we engage in that would assist in that. I think first thing is that you know historically most HOR functions or HEOR functions. Are, are, are primarily focused on justifying um, the economics uh, of therapies, right? And, and, you, and you do that under the context of what's the current standard of care and how is this making it better, right? So the value question is really what you get into. Um, then one of the key questions that we always get from many of the providers is, okay, if I were to prescribe this medication, what would be the impact of it, you know, to the patient? Right. Is it, you know, because there, there are certain situations where there are therapies that are already on market, 
um, for particular clinical conditions. And so you really got to say, is this therapy, um, is it going to generate clinical, better clinical outcomes? Is it cheaper? You know, is it uh, less intrusive, right? You know, like when you shift from, um, you know, uh, intravenous uh, administration to just oral therapies, you know, I mean, is, is it, um, you know, and then, uh, then also I think um, um, in the case of where there are new diseases or new disease types, you know, can, we can always use real evidence to better characterize those diseases and better understand those diseases. I think one of the key example uh, uh, examples I would give is that, uh, when it comes to the uh, drug Viagra, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't think that people thought ED um, what was a <laughs> was a uh, or erectile dysfunction. Sorry, <laughs> actual uh, thing. It, it was it was an actual disease. Yeah, right. You know, so that's what I mean. So it's kind of like you use real real evidence to better understand and honestly um, do a bit of hypothesis generating generation around potential new diseases that we don't fully, fully understand. You know, I was actually reading something the other day, Jerome, where they were talking about uh, the anticipation of new diseases due to technology, right? And I was like, man, what, what does that mean, due to technology? And then, uh, so I'm reading the article and it's talking about, you know, because now more and more folks are using these virtual reality uh, devices and many of them are playing these kind of first person shooter games, like the Call of Duty type of games of the world. Mm-hmm. And the potential for them to engage and now suffer from some form of PTSD as a result of it, right? So now they're going to be coming up with a new disease, believe it or not, that says that, you know, regular civilians could actually suffer from PTSD due to these virtual reality games and engage in in these games for extended periods of time. And, um, you know, I mean, so these are different situations where real evidence actually applies. Now, when you think about oncology specifically, what we're getting into is a world where we can be much more precise if we're going to stick to precision medicine and, uh, and better understand that individual patient but also understanding more about the disease than we ever knew. Um, you know, I think that, um, you know, uh, you know, we also know that, you know, I, I think one of the greatest uh, innovations or advances we've seen in medicine is uh, the ability to do the whole cocktail approach to certain therapies. I mean, we saw the other day um, that the president who was at Walter Reed and they were like, well, how are you treating this person? And they were like, well, we're using a cocktail approach uh, to uh, increase the, the number of antibodies that he has so that he, hopefully that, you know, he can get through this uh, uh, yeah. period of, the, uh, of COVID much quicker than the others have. And so I think that's a very personalized approach to him. I don't know what they know about his health condition that we don't know. And obviously I shouldn't know. Uh, but the uh, But the idea of being, uh, personalizing that approach to the individual is what we're really trying to get to. The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue right after this. With the explosion of new data and biomarkers in lung cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and payers to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which tests are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit trapellohealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based options when time matters most. 
When it comes to precision medicine as it pertains to its use in oncology, is largely dependent upon biomarker testing because the biomarkers identifying which patients are likely candidates for drugs or, or deselecting candidates or therapies based on their biomarker expression is, we believe, a key to unlocking the potential of, of precision medicine. As it pertains to real-world evidence, what are some other barriers that you see that are kind of standing in the way of the progress or the, the rapid expansion of leveraging this information? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, um, um, you know, there, there's been increasingly interest in uh, biomarker uh, identification and, and development with the use of RWE um, in many respects, because if you think about it, um, if you think about the use of RWE in the context of what we know in our traditional way of conducting uh, randomized clinical trials, what you're looking for is um, a, a better understanding of the disease or to contextualize the disease itself and what we know about it, right? I mean, so, and then you want to kind of understand the characteristics of the patients and the types of patients who are most affected uh, by these diseases. I think, um, you know, and then you start to get into, uh, and, you know, and, and, and many of our friends in clinical discovery, uh, what type of biomarker development can we glean from these sort of data and analyses. And so you, you very much view it like a feedback loop. Now, the issue is uh, when it comes to real-world evidence, as you start to get into clinical discovery and, and clinical development, is that if the goal is to better understand performance of a drug in a real-world context, if the drug is not on the market, then you can't fully understand its performance because it's just not there. So it's like a, it's a data availability challenge, right? right. Uh, um, but, but what we can get into is a world where we understand the disease. So if you're focused on drug performance, then that's one thing. But if, you, if you're focused on disease contextualization and characterization, then that's a different issue. And we can use many of our, our data sources to, to better understand that. And so I think uh, when, I, when I think about the potential for the use of RWE, um, what I'm going to argue is much more upstream you know, then I, I think that um, it's really the, the best, the, the biggest role that it can play is in this idea of contextualizing and characterizing a disease in a much more novel way than we've ever done before. Because now you have this rich um, historical database of all of these patients over the years that you can look back and you, you know, and we may not have understood, you know, using that ED example, for example, right? Um, ED before, but now we know what it is, and now we can look back 50 years and say, wow, these patients were exhibiting symptoms of this disease that we didn't even know they were exhibiting before. And so, um, so that, that's one of the big, uh, I think, advantages of the use of it. It's just by, by you know, we, we now have this rich repository of data on patients and certain disease types, and, um, and we may not have fully understood what those diseases are because they weren't, it wasn't designated a disease, right? Um, you know, but now we can actually look back and see the symptoms and even get some form of a, a, a longitudinal perspective on that patient over many years to see what sort of, um, um, you know, what sort of response they had to certain drugs or if, you know, if their their health, health situation, self situation improved at all. Yeah. Right? You mentioned artificial intelligence and I've, I've heard you speak on that can an automated system or technology solution help us increase clinical trial accrual while lowering the cost to acquire a patient into clinical trials? 
Yes. <laughs> I guess simply put, I mean, I think the, the reality is, is that, um, you know, we, we are at a place where we're, we're generating so much data. I mean, and it's just, it's unbelievable. And, you know, one of the stats that I saw uh, within the last couple of years is that we were generating this expo- exponential amount of data, but we were only analyzing less than 5% of it. Right. Mm. And, um, and so I don't think, you know, it, it's not a, a matter of if we should use AI, it's a matter of how. Right. Um, because I don't think that, you know, we can analyze the data at the pace at which we generate it in order to to really get those insights. And so when it comes to something uh, sort of, uh, you know, if we're using the the idea around, um, uh, you know, and this is one of the actually one of the greatest benefits of, of, of real evidence is the, uh, the ability to identify patients, you know, and, and identify where they are. Um, you, you almost can't rely on human uh, intervention or human analysis to be able to comb through all of that data and be able to make a clear determination as if they are best fit for to participation in this trial, or even um, if they're in the trial, um, the, the you know fully understanding what their clinical outcomes were and if certain endpoints were met and so on and so forth. Um, but but I think um, you know when it comes to the idea around AI, the the I, I think we're thinking about, I almost feel like we're thinking about it wrong. We're approaching it wrong, right? Because we are approaching it as if it's an either or when it comes to human involvement and a, and the use of AI. Good point. I'm not going to go off and say that uh, the AI itself is only as good as the data quality or the data source that it's deriving the data from. One of the things that we've been particularly focused on, and I was, you know, I was actually a pleasure of talking to two of our leads here at AbbVie, one of which leads our precision medicine um, expansion efforts. The other leads our genomics initiatives, right? And the one common thing that they both told me directly was around the need for, uh, the, obviously the need for more data, but not just any data, quality data, right? Quality observational data that they can use because really the models are only as good as the data sources that they are building the models from. And as we move into this period of automation, um, you know, as much as we can, you know, I think that it's always going to come down to data accessibility and data quality, data accessibility and data quality. And, um, you know, and I, and, I, and I think it's particularly interesting that um, we, uh, I don't think, when you think about organizations, especially pharma companies and their attempts at AI, we're, we're approaching it in a way that, oh, I've invested in this AI, therefore, I should be able to cut costs everywhere else. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I think that just by the virtue of being able to better identify patients and where they are and re- and improve our recruiting efforts, that would lower the cost of a per patient cost per trial, right? Um, and so, so that that so the operating cost I think is inevitable and 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 will be addressed uh, just by technology. But I don't even think you need AI for that. I just think you need better insights into. Uh, the locations of where the patients are. And that, that's really what a lot of real evidence gets us. But I think AI gets you uh, a greater advantage in its ability to uh, do things in a uh, faster and cheaper way just by the, the mere fact of speed to analysis, right? And um, and so that, that's one of the key things that I think that we have to think about is uh, this idea of how are we effectively utilizing AI and in what situations. You know, I know that... Uh, there's been a number of attempts over the years to, to deploy 
uh, AI in a clinical discovery and clinical development context, one of which was uh, the idea of being able to siphon through all the literature and, and you know, globally in, in record time, right? Because a lot of the things you're doing now, you hire epidemiologists, they're reviewing many of these articles and they're trying to be as efficient as they can. But the reality is if you had, um, you know, some AI capabilities, you could probably comb through much of that literature at a much faster rate and honestly be much more accurate in what you extract from it, right? Um, because, uh, and that's really the claim to fame that I think uh, technology such as Watson were aiming to do. Um, but, um, you know, I think there, there, there is still a role for human invention, uh, even when it comes to that, because you, you still need folks that are going to go back and do the, the spot checking, uh, if you will. Um, you know, I know there are a number of tech companies in the oncology space, by the way, who are using AI um, to essentially do much of their analysis. And they can't rely solely on the AI as far as from a quality perspective. So what they do is they have, uh, you know, a certain percentage of audit checks they use as part of the process. Uh, so, you know, I don't know if the human intervention would ever be totally removed. I think you can lower the cost. I think you can lower the cost of, uh, of trial recruitment uh, for each individual. Um, but it's not just recruitment, it's also retention. And that's a big thing too. Yeah. You mentioned one of your early passions is is wanting to be a CEO for a public hospital. When you talk about diversity in healthcare administration or, or talent, um, you know, there, there's not a large representation in many cases in the decision makers. Um, what effect do you think that has on the research? I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on record saying more diversity equals better science. And, um, and the reality is, is that we can't understand the, uh, the response of these, you know, of these therapists on these various subpopulations absent having their participation in the studies. I, I get that there are a number of uh, reasons why, uh, you know, certain groups aren't participatory in, um, in some of the clinical trials. I mean, if you think about it from the Black community, there's a long history of why, you know, we are, as a people, are much more reluctant to participate in, in clinical trials. But I, I tell folks all the time and is that if we don't have that level of participation, because the, the reality, what we aim to do, and this goes back to your idea around precision medicine, is to better understand, you know, uh, a person's genetics, their environment, uh, their lifestyle, and, and ultimately how we can uh, better improve how we, we essentially uh, prevent and, and treat diseases, right? And so, if, if if we don't if we don't get that level of participation, then we're we're not doing uh, we're not doing our jobs um, as far as uh, uh, representing the general population in these studies and making sure that we're seeing the positive responses in all populations, not just one. And you know, and it shouldn't just be white males who have who have historically been the um, the more dominant p participant in these studies approach to research gives us a greater opportunity for more diverse study candidates to participate in the data. I do. You know, I mean, you think about it. Uh, one, of, There was a recent study that was on multiple myeloma and um, and it, it basically it was it, the article was stating that 20% uh, of multiple myeloma patients are African-American, for example. Right. And the only way you know that is, you know, that through real world data. 
right? So twenty percent of the the patient population who have who've been diagnosed with multiple myeloma are African American. But then they went back and they looked at the clinical trials for multiple myeloma, and they saw that less than three percent of the study participants were African American. So you have a twenty percent prevalence rate, and you have less than three percent of participation in clinical studies or clinical trials, and that to me. Is problematic, would you not say? I mean, so so I think that the the advantage that real world data gives us in these in these different situations is that we can better characterize not just the disease but the patient population. Like, what who all has this disease, right? Yeah. And then how to and, and I'm not saying that it has to be directly proportional, right? So you have 20 percent of prevalent a 20% prevalence rate in African Americans, so therefore you need 20% in clinical trials. I mean, I know it may be a bit challenging uh, in some regards, but what the real world data also gives us, it tells us where are these patients? So then we can identify sites um, where we can actually engage these patients by better and potentially recruit them into uh, to these clinical studies. But the thing that I'm very hopeful for, honestly, and what's really been, what's really come to play and what's really come to bear in this, in the course of this pandemic is the idea of doing uh, virtual or decentralized trials, right? Where it doesn't yeah. matter as much where you are physically, right? Um, you know, we can leverage technology to ensure that we're getting the level of participation that we need from all patients and all people. And it does help with retention too. This is truly fascinating stuff. For for those who want to get in touch with you or um, to contact you for, for speaking opportunities, how can they get in touch? Do, are you on social media? How can they reach out to you? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm on LinkedIn and I'm on Twitter. Uh, you can find me. I'm Data Hippie. I'm on on Data Twitter. Hippie on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm at, it's at Data Hippie, and then even on LinkedIn, actually, it's Data Hippie there too. So, uh, <laughs> so you, you can find me. I, yeah, I, I, I'm not cool enough to be on Instagram and all that stuff. And like <laughs> so, um, so, but but I'm but I'm out there, and you know, if you definitely want to get in touch with me, please do. Christopher Boone, Vice President, Global Head of health economics and outcomes research for Abby. Chris, you know, you, you got a couple of Texas raised men on this podcast. So I have to ask you the, the real question that people want to know. Are you a Dallas Cowboys fan? <laughs> yeah, I'm a diehard Dallas Cowboys fan, man. You can't help but be in my family. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I can say that with any immense amount of pride right now, but uh <laughs> Uh, you know, but, but, you know, I'm, I'm hanging in there. I can't, I'm not a fair weather fan, man. You know, it's just, you know, the thing that's most disappointing though, is that the year that we, the years that we expect to do well, we do horribly. Right. Break your heart. And, and, and then the years that you're like, well, I'm, I'll be happy if we go 500, eight and eight, I'll be good. You know, cause that's, that's overachieving. Then all of a sudden we go like 13 and three and I'm like, what is this? You know, you just never know how this whole thing will play out. You know, and this year it's it's been very very disappointing. You know, to say the least. Yeah. So at least we have you know some some big problems that we're we're both trying to solve to focus on, and you're making a tremendous impact not only here in the United States but globally. So thank you for being a guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit GetTrapello.com. 
To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.